This episode of The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, galleries, whatever you can dream of, Squarespace will help you make it. You guys know me. I love the internet. I try to take in as much internet every day as I possibly can, but I also love the opportunity to put something else out there, something that other people can take in. That, to me, is what the internet is all about, and if that's something you're interested in doing, There's no easier way to do it than Squarespace. You just go to the website, pick your template, and then you just kind of fill it with stuff, whether it's writing, whether it's pictures, whether it's products you want to sell. You just kind of fill it with your stuff. You know how to make stuff. You just don't know how to get it online. Squarespace is going to help you do that. You also get 24-7 support. And if you sign up for a year... They'll even throw in a free domain name. You know, whether you're a creative professional with a portfolio or a business owner with wares to sell or you're a Goosebumps fan fiction writer with Goosebumps fan fiction organized, Squarespace makes it easy to bring those ideas to life. And I'm going to make it a little bit cheaper, too, because if you go to squarespace.com slash Jeff Rubin, enter the promo code NERD. Last month's promo code was dork. This month's promo code is nerd. Try to keep up. Squarespace.com slash Jeff Rubin. Promo code NERD you will get 10% off your Squarespace purchase. Start your website for free today, uh, right after you listen to this episode. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today, I know I say this a lot, but today I am unbelievably excited because on the old Skype on the phone, we have R.L. Stein. Sir, welcome to the show. Jeff, thank you very much. Nice to be here. Hope you're having a scary day. I am kind of having a scary day now that you mention it, even... Just in the first 10 seconds of the show, I'm already kind of hedging my bets a little because I called you sir. I wasn't sure if I should go with R.L. or Robert or Bob. No one ever called me R.L. You have to live in Texas to be called by your initials, (laughs) right? R.L. would be fine in Texas, but I'm in New York. So I guess then my first question is, how did you end up with R.L. Stein as your pen name? What made you decide to go with that? Well, before I was scary, I was funny. And I did about 100 joke books for kids. And I did a humor magazine for 10 years called Bananas. And at the time, my name was Jovial Bob Stein. And then when I brought out my first scary novel, Blind Date, I thought, gee, Jovial Bob Stein is not a very appropriate name for scary stuff. And so I just used my initials. But you have used R.L. Stein on some uh, comedy books. I actually remember reading uh, when I was a kid, and I didn't remember them until I started reading about you this week, the Space Cadet series of books. Yes. About kind of these, like, goofballs who go into space. And your name's R.L. Stein on that. So it seems like the horror and the comedy overlapped at least a little bit. It did. And um, actually, I did a recently, I did a long series, a 16-book series called Rotten School which was all funny. I didn't scare kids. And I used my name because now people know my name now. What was that transition like going from comedy to horror? What made you make that jump? People wanted the scary stuff. That's what made me make the jump. You just like looked at the market and saw No, I really, I, I never planned. I'd always loved horror, but I never planned to write it. I always just wanted to be funny. 
And I wrote this first scary novel for teenagers, Blind Date, and it was a number one bestseller. Uh, number one on the publisher's weekly list. I'd never been close to that list. And I thought, wait, what's going on here? And a year later, I wrote another one, and it was a bestseller. And I thought, wait a minute, I've stumbled onto something here. <laughs> I've, I've just stumbled onto something kids want to read. And I actually used to go from school, I visit schools, and I didn't really understand it. And I would say, why do you like these books? I would ask kids. And they always said, we like to be scared. And I realized I'd struck a chord here. And I've, I've been scary ever since. Why do you think kids like to be scared? Oh, I think we all do, don't we? I think so, but I, I'm impressed that the kids know that they like to be scared. Because it's scared is, I, th I think, something you think of as a negative emotion. But we all seek it out, you know, when we go see a horror movie or whatever. But what is it about kids that makes them love being scared? Because they can have these scary adventures and battle these monsters and fight the invisible creatures and know that they're safe at the same time. And what made you decide to write for kids in the first place? Because it sounds like even when you were doing comedy, that was for kids. Everything I've ever done is an accident. Every, really, Jeff, everything that ever happened to me. I came, I came to New York. I grew up in Ohio and came to New York to be a writer. I wanted to write adult humor novels. And I just happened to, you know, I had to work for, I had to get a job and ended up at Scholastic. I was an editor at Scholastic, started writing for kids, and there I was. It just, you know, I always tell kids, you, you, you can't really plan your career. You can't know what's going to happen to you, because so many accents, there's so many twists and turns. And there I was, writing for kids, and an editor called me and said, I love your funny magazine. I'll bet you could write good children's books. And I thought, gee, I never thought about it. She said, let's have lunch and talk about doing some funny children's books. And that's how I got writing for kids. So really just an accident. Everything. Everything that's happened to me. When you were considering writing comedy for grown-ups, what kind of books did you imagine you were going to write? Basically romantic comedies. Um, people don't remember Max Shulman, who was a big humorist in the Midwest when I was growing up. And he wrote uh, Dobie Gillis. Maybe some people remember that. And he had a couple TV series. Dobie Gillis was a TV series. And he was a very popular humorist at the time and a very big influence on me. I wanted to be Max Shulman um, when I started writing. Mm -hmm. And a lot, all the other humor writers, uh, you know, I went to Ohio State and I was editor of the humor magazine there, uh, the same magazine that James Thurber edited back in 1917. So he was also uh, an influence on me. I went to Penn State, and I was the editor of the humor magazine over there. And for me, uh, more than class, that was really kind of the thing I did and where I learned something. Was that the case for you? Right, how to do a magazine. I was editor of the humor magazine at Ohio State for three years. Three out of my four years. That's all I did. And did you always have a, a love of horror movies? Even if it wasn't something you were thinking about doing, did you have a love of horror? My brother and I used to go to every scary movie every Saturday. We'd go to some scary, they'd have a double feature. You know, The Creature Walks Among Us, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, It Came from Under the Sea. We loved those films. We saw them all. What were some of your favorite horror movies as a kid? Well, those are some of them. 
Um, I love the King original King Kong film, and um, I, you can tell that some of those titles uh, slightly changed became Goosebumps titles. Mm -hmm. It came beneath the sea came, uh, became it came from beneath the sink. Well, I think Goosebumps seems like it has a, a healthy love of you know that fifties horror B movie. Um, you can see that throughout the series, that kind of influence, like Invasion of this something. I don't even know if that's one of them, but, you know, that, that kind of – a lot of the covers look like 50s horror movie posters. We tried. I did Invasion of the Body Squeezers. I knew there was an invasion in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just reread a Goosebumps for the first time in a while. Uh, I read Say Cheese and Die this week, and I noticed that the main character read comic books. Was that something you were into growing up? Well, that was – yes, I was. I, I'm thinking, I, that was one of my earliest influences, I think. I didn't really read books and things when I was a kid. I read, I had a huge stack of comic books. All my friends did, and we used to trade them. And when I was a kid, of course, the EC comics were around. Mm -hmm. The incredible horror comics, Tales from the Crypt, and The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. And they were just amazing. You know, I just, I couldn't believe how great they were. The art was just terrific. These were amazing illustrators, and they were gruesome, bloody, horrible comics, and they all had a funny twist ending. Every story had a twist. Do you remember those books, those comic books? Because they were banned at some point. Were you following them at the time? Uh, they were banned sometime in the late 50s. Um, there was a big outcry about juvenile delinquency. And people who thought, oh, these comics have gone too far and they're causing kids to become juvenile delinquents. So, you know, that, that pretty much, they, they killed the whole business. And that's something you would experience to a degree yourself later. Not as much, it didn't kill the business, but there has been some controversy around Goosebumps. And uh, a lot of parents saying they're too violent. It's, uh, I think, a perpetual, perpetually on the list of uh, the most challenged books in libraries. Uh, how, how do you how do you respond to that when people say that goosebumps are too scary or too violent for kids? Well, I think everyone knows now that they're not. Um, but in the early days, we did have a lot of um, I, uh, uh, people were you know wanted to get it off library shelves, and there were parents who were upset about it. But uh, I actually I think I was surprised how little controversy there was because it was a horror series for kids. But, you know, I had such support from librarians and reading teachers and teachers because they saw the kids were reading. And um, I think that helped quite a bit. What is it about Goosebumps that made it able to break through and reach those kids who weren't necessarily reading a lot of books? Well, partly because of the subject matter and partly because they're so easy to read. I keep them very simple to read. The reading level is very low, which is deliberate. It's short sentences, short chapters, very short chapters, a big shock at the end of every chapter, which, you know, a, a cliffhanger, which keeps you reading on. And uh, I, I think that's why they appeal. Do you think that grown-ups worry too much about scaring kids, whether it be in the 50s with EC Comics or in the 90s with Goosebumps? Do you think maybe we don't give kids enough credit and uh, worry about them too much? Kids are very smart. And uh, kids know, I, they, they know if they're ready for this kind of book. Kids know if they're going to be scared. They, they, kids are smart. They know if it's going to upset them. I had two nephews 
back in the 90s when I was, you know, at the height of Goosebumps. And they were like six or seven. And my one nephew loved them. He thought they were hilarious. He just loved them. And my other nephew, Sam, hated them. He was terrified. And he didn't want any part of them. Every once in a while, I would send, he lived in New Jersey, I would mail Sam one. And I'd say, Sam, here's one I think you'll like. It's not very scary. I think you'll like this one. And he called me up one day and he said, Bob, you know where this book is going, right in the garbage. Did they appreciate and did it help that these books were by their Uncle Bob? Forget Uncle Bob. My son was the right age, and his claim to fame is that he never read one. Even to this day? Yeah, well, now he, he does my website now, so he has to, like, look them over. But, uh, no, he never read one. Just make me nuts. So, let's go back a little. You wrote one horror story, it took off, you wrote another, it took off. When did you have the idea to do a series of them and to call it Goosebumps? Well, I did two or three individual titles, um horror novels for teenagers. And then we had the idea, well, they like them so much, we should do a series for teenagers of scary books. And we came up with Fear Street, mm -hmm. about a very normal town called Shadyside. And one street in the town, Fear Street, if you move to Fear Street, horrible things happen to you. I blame that on the people that name the street. Well, I always thought if people just moved to Happy Street, they'd be fine. Right, right. That's across town. That's right. Very boring books. Very boring books. Very thin book. Yeah. They stayed on Fear Street and horrible. We did all kinds of occult and teenage. I killed off teenagers every month. I was just killing teenagers left and right in this year. I don't know why. I didn't. I didn't know why I enjoyed it so much. Why did I enjoy killing teenagers so much? I, and, I, why did you? Well, I realized I had one at home. <laughs> anyway, Fear Street was very successful. I mean, it's actually people, a lot of people don't realize it was the biggest selling YA series um, of all time, I believe. We sold something like, I hate to brag, but we sold something like 80 million copies of Fear Street. This is all pre-Goosebumps. This was started in 89, we started Fear Street. And then... Um, my wife and her business partner, they have a company called Parachute Press, independent producers of books. And I was doing Fear Street through their company. And they said, we have to try a younger series. No one has ever done a scary book series for 7 to 12-year-olds. We have to try it. And here's the kind of businessman I am, Jeff. I said, no way. I don't want to do it. How did they convince you? Well, they just kept after me. I said, I didn't want to mess up Fear Street. I, you know, we had a, it was going well. I didn't want the audience to get confused and the audience to get younger. They said, you have to try this. No one's done it. Let's try it. Let's come up with something. And then finally, I, finally I said, well, okay, if I can think of a good name for the series, uh, we can tr we'll try a few of them. And so one day I was reading TV Guide and there was this, uh, reading the TV listings, and there was a little ad down at the bottom of a page, and it said, it's Goosebumps Week on Channel 11. They were showing scary movies. And I thought, I just stared at it. I just saw that word, and I, I said, that is a perfect name. It's scary, and it's funny. So you knew. You knew. 
I just stared, but I didn't know anything else. I said, all right, I think we, we sold it to Scholastic, and I think the first contract was for four books. We'll do four. What else did you know about it, like, as you started writing it? What were the things you were thinking that this series was going to do? It had to be scary and funny. It couldn't be too scary for the younger kids. Mm-hmm. So I got to use all my talents that way. I got to, you know, put a lot of funny stuff in. Anytime a book would start to get too intense, I'd throw in a, some kind of tease or some kind of surprise. And, you know, it was that kind of blend. Was it an immediate hit? No. No. In fact, today, I don't think it would have survived because they take books off the shelf so fast today because of computers. Mm-hmm. So they sat there for six months. And nothing happened. Nothing. And we thought, well, that didn't work. And then suddenly, they just took off. Word of mouth. Just kids telling kids. The secret kids network. Because we had no advertising. We had no hype of any kind. It was 1992. We had, no one really knew me that well. I, I didn't do any appearances to sell it. It just took off by by kids all over the world. It was this amazing thing. How did you know it was taking off? Because at this point, you've already sold 80 million books. You've written one of the top YA series of all time. How do you know this is something different? Well, just by the sales figures. The mail from it was incredible. I mean, kid, when kids like something, this is why I love writing for kids. They write to you. As the author of Goosebumps, how much mail were you getting? I, at one point, I was getting 2,000 letters a week from kids. I have a story about a letter you once wrote. Yes. And it's a story that I wasn't even there for, but I transferred schools at some point when I was a kid. So I came to this class after this happened, but it was such a major event that people never stopped talking about it. I guess in fifth grade, and again, I was not there for this, um, in fifth grade, the teacher told the kids uh, they were reading, I don't know, Little House on the Prairie or something. You know, one of the classics. And the kids just were not having it. And they organized like a revolt. Like they protested it and they said, we want to read Goosebumps instead. And they were apparently so tenacious about it that the teacher eventually gave in and said, fine, we can all read Goosebumps. And they wrote a letter to you and you wrote back. And it was like the greatest day in the history of school for the for these kids. Did you get a lot of letters like that? I, yeah, quite a few. Not, I, I guess very funny letters, too. I, I have to say most of my letters read like this. Dear R.L. Stein, our, for, our, our teacher is forcing us to, <laughs> and I chose you. Where do you get your ideas? That's about 90% of the mail. What do you say to that? I well, you know, what can I say? I, I it's very I, that's an impossible question to answer. That's every author's most asked question. Where do you get your ideas? And of course, it's impossible. You know, I always I always want to say, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> I have ideas. Who knows? But I I get a wonderful mail. And here's here are a couple. You want to hear some of my favorites? I'd love to. Here are a few favorites. Dear R. L. Stein. I'm a big Fear Street fan. I love those books. I have just one question. Why do they always end without making any sense? <laughs> That's good, right? Yeah, Here's good. A, got a couple of weeks ago from a girl. Dear R.L. Stein, you are my second favorite author. Did she mention who number one was? That was the whole letter. <laughs> who do you think number one was? No idea. 
it was just sort of tantalizing, you know? Yeah, just really, I want to hear more about that. Do you have any other memorable letters from over the years? A hundred of them. I can go on. I, you know, I saved them all. The funny ones. Um, uh, Dear R.L. Stein, I love your books, but I'm having trouble keeping up. Do you think you could stop writing for a while? Just give me a chance to catch up. Well, that actually brings up a great point. Uh, Goosebumps, you wrote a lot of Goosebumps books very quickly. Was that from the onset or was that once they started selling? Once they started selling, you know, we did the first four and then I think we signed on for four more. And then it, it was so huge uh, and there was such demand. I did one a month. I did 12 a year. And what was your work schedule like then? How did you turn out one a month? I didn't get out much. Believe me. I had, you know, because I was doing Fear Street and Goosebumps one a month. So you're writing two books every month. Do you keep a very regimented schedule for yourself? Do you wake up and write nine to five? Well, I, in those, yeah, I had to. Still do. You know, I'm still doing Goosebumps books called Goosebumps Most Wanted. And I always treated it as a job. I mean, I sit down. I, it's sort of like factory work, I think. I do 10 pages a day. I sit down around 10 o'clock and I write 10 pages. And then I get up, stagger away, take the dog for a walk. And that's, you know, it's sort of piecework. And you're still writing books for kids today. How do you stay up with what kids are into now? Well, that's an important part of, of the thing. You don't want to sound like some old guy who's totally out of it, you know. Mm-hmm, of course. So how do you do it? Well, I do a lot of school visits, and I talk to kids all the time, and I spy on them. I see, listen to them, how they talk, and what they wear, that kind of thing, and try to keep up with pop culture. What have you found uh, that's different about what kids want today versus what kids wanted in the 90s? It hasn't changed. And I actually think Goosebumps could have been written in the 50s. So if it hasn't changed, why do you bother keeping up? Here's what's changed, Jeff. The technology. That's it. Mm-hmm. But we always we all have the same fears. Luckily, uh, the, for me, the fears never change. And are we talking about core primal fears like loneliness, or is it something more specific, like killer ventriloquist dummies? Afraid of the dark. Afraid something is hiding in your closet. Afraid there's something under your bed, and when you sit down, it's going to grab you by the ankles. That kind of fear. And uh, that never changes. Did you ever have trouble with this you know, factory-like schedule uh, were there ever any months? I, there must have been where you were stuck and you didn't have an idea. No, never happened. Now, are you, I don't know if you're kidding or not. Did that never happen? Never happened. Kids always ask about writer's block. Mm-hmm. And they hate my answer to this. What I do is I outline every book before I write it. I do a complete chapter-by-chapter chapter outline of every book I write before I do it. I do all the hard part before I start to write. I do, this is what happens in chapter one, and this is how the chapter ends. This is how chapter two starts. And I do it including the ending. I know the ending. So when I sit down to write a book, I know everything that's going to happen in the book. It's easy. There's no way to have writer's block. But did you ever have writer's block while doing that outline? That seems like the hard work. Those take time. I don't want to ask where you got your ideas from, since I've heard that's a terrible question. (laughs) But are there any specific Goosebumps ideas that you remember having an interesting origin, like just an aha moment? You, you saw you know, a dummy or something like that, and you were like, i got to write about that. Yeah, definitely. 
The Haunted Mask is one of the most popular Goosebumps books. You know that one? Yeah, that one had a few sequels, as I recall. Many. And I do a lot of sequels. And that uh, that idea actually came from something. This is about a girl named Carly Beth who pulls on a Halloween mask and then she can't get it off. It sticks to her face and becomes part of her skin and it turns her evil. And I remember very well where the idea for that came from. When my son Matt was a little guy, he w- it was Halloween time and he was trying on a green rubber Frankenstein mask. And I'm watching from the doorway. And he pulled it down over his head. And then he couldn't get it off. And he was tugging and tugging. And I'm watching this. And I'm thinking, what a great idea for us. St- I should have helped him, right? <laughs> you didn't win the Good Parent Award that day. But you won, you know, top-selling author in USA Today. So they, they, they even out. Yeah, well, I guess. I guess. So I, I just started ranking notes. And I thought, great idea for a book. And that's where that one came from. I imagine once the series is peaking, you've got people coming to you all the time just like, bees, you got to write a book about bees. <laughs> yeah, you do. But you know what? what's weird is kids always send ideas. I get a million ideas from kids. I've never used one for some reason. Have you ever been tempted, though? Surely, if you got a million of them, one or two must have been good. Their ideas are usually too scary. Oh, well, how do you draw that line? Like, what, what is too scary for kids? Too real. Does anyone ever die in a Goosebumps book? So there's certainly death, and you know, like, there, there's some fake-outs, but there, there usually is a real goblin or monster or alien of some kind. Do people die? Oh, not in Goosebumps. But in Fear Street and, and so it forth. died a hundred years ago, before the book started. Right, right, right. There's, like, ghosts. No one ever dies. See, Goosebumps has to be, like, this fun fantasy. That's my rule. Mm-hmm. Kids know, well, this could never happen. And then I think that's what makes it safe. They know it's not going to go too far. There's, it's just, it's not, I leave out all real world. You know, this is a very scary world for kids, I think. But I leave out anything real that would really be troubling to kids. Do you have a Goosebumps that you look back on and you think, wow, I got really dark with that one? Very first one. Welcome to Dead House, I believe? Yeah. What was so scary about that one? It was just totally scary. It was creepy. Everyone in town said, I used to live in your house. I used to. And they're all zombies. And it's, it, it had no humor. I, I, hadn't discover, I hadn't figured out what Goosebumps should be yet. I didn't have the right balance. And I've always thought that one was, was too scary. Then the second one, Stay Out of the Basement, I got the right tone. It's very funny. And it's, you know, that's one about a father turning into a plant. And he has leaves growing out of his head instead of hair. Did Scholastic ever shoot anything down and say, no, this is too dark. We can't sell this. Actually, I was pretty concerned. A lot of times the editors would say, hype this up, make this scarier. I tended to be a little conservative, I think. And there was only one time when they thought I went too far. And it was a book called The Girl Who Cried Monster. It was about a girl who sees the librarian. She's back in the shelves and realizes that the town librarian is a monster. Only no one believes her. And I had one scene originally in the book where the librarian eats a kid. And they thought that might be going too far. So they thought, we don't really want to have somebody eat a kid. 
So I changed it and I put a big bowl of live turtles on the librarian's desk. And every once in a while, the librarian would reach out and pick up a turtle and put it in his mouth and chew it up, which is actually better than eating a kid. Yeah, it's so much scarier and more disturbing. Uh, Much crunchier, too. That's one time, one thing I can remember where um, they said, oh, you went too far here. Do you have, reflecting on, uh, you know, the series, which is still ongoing, do you have a favorite Goosebumps? Well, I have a lot of favorites. Um, I, I, there's a brand, one of the brand new ones is called Son of Slappy. And uh, I'm very pleased. I like all the ones with Slappy, the evil dummy that comes to life. He's a very fun character to write because he's really insulting. Yeah, he's and almost I- like the Joker. Yeah, right. And I can write all these great insults and be really rude. So I enjoy writing him. That's that's a favorite of mine. Is it tempting to, you know, spin off Slappy into his own series? And uh, you've done a few sequels with him now. But do you ever just want to focus on one character and not do an anthology? No, that would be hard. Well, you know, I've chosen the hardest thing you can possibly do. And that is an anthology series where you have to start over every single month with a whole new cast of characters, which is, I, that's just the hardest, hard, it's hard. But um, I, I enjoy it, and I, I think I'd get tired of Slappy if I had to do him every month. I've done five or six Slappy books at least, though. But they've Kids, been spread out over two decades. Yeah. Kids love sequels. They like mm. them. And a lot of times, the sequel, um, Night of the Living Dummy 2, did better than Night of the Living Dummy. Do you know off the top of your head what is the best-selling Goosebumps book? I think it's the first one. Uh, which, unfortunately, we just learned is the scariest one. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't know. I think The Haunted Mask might be second. You know, it's funny when you talk about these books, even though I haven't read them in a while or even seen them necessarily in a bookstore, I can still so clearly picture the image on the cover, and like I know what color the border of that image was. Some of those images were so striking, and they were all done uh, by one artist, yeah. Tim Jacobus. Am I saying that correctly? Right. He did the first 87 cover paintings. And how did you get hooked up with him? I didn't even meet him until we had been doing the series for three years. You know, publishers never want the author to get together with the artist. Why not? They want to keep them separately. They don't want to be outnumbered by them or anything. And I, he was doing covers, and I didn't meet him till we had a big Goosebumps party to launch the TV series, and he showed up, and that's the first time I ever met him. We never re- you don't really work together. I would, I would write a brief summary of the plot of the next book, and they would send it to him with some you know, suggestions, and he would start sketching while I was writing the book. And it was amazing because almost every single book, his cover matched up with what happened in in the story. Once in a while, it didn't quite. You just mentioned Say Cheese and Die. Mm -hmm. If you remember the cover on that book, that book was about um, these boys who discover a really evil camera in an abandoned house. And they start taking pictures with this camera. And it takes pictures of bad things that happen in the future. And the cover painting came in from Tim, and it was a family of skeletons barbecuing. It had nothing to do with the book. They, the, the editors called me up, and they said, 
look, you have to add a scene with skeletons barbecuing. <laughs> you have to add a scene. So the paint, you can't change the painting. You have to change the manuscript. And I thought, what am I going to do? It has, what am, how am I going to do this? And then I, I figured out I, I made it a dream sequence. The kid dreams about skeletons barbecuing. And that's how I, got, how I made it make sense. It is an extremely creepy image, though. Very. Oh, yeah, it's a great cover. just didn't have anything to do with the book. Do you have a favorite cover, uh, looking back at all the ones that Tim did? Um, oh, I, I don't know. I love a whole bunch of them. I, I, one of the best I, covers, I think, goes with one of the worst books. And that was called The Barking Ghost. And it has this ferocious dog on the cover. Just ferocious-looking dog. And it's very, you know, it's just very, uh, uh, you, you can't look away. And why do you think that's one of the worst books? Never liked that book. Well, what I, is it about that one that didn't do it for you? I remember. I just didn't think it was well constructed. I didn't like that book. But I love the cover. It sounds like you're a pretty harsh but fair judge of your own work. Is that fair to say? Well, I, you know, when you do one a month, there are going to be some great ones, right? Mm-hmm. And that aren't quite as good. And, I, and also, I, my editors are very tough. And sometimes I would say to my editor, well, uh, the next one will make sense. <laughs> the, next, the next book will make sense. Don't worry about it. But I never got away with that. And I know you're still writing them now, but at what point did that one-a-month schedule ramp down? Or did it ever ramp down? Well, we took a break for eight years. And I did a bunch of other series and had fun with a lot of other stuff, including the Rotten School books, which were really fun to do. And I did a series called The Nightmare Room and uh, Mostly Ghostly and um, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of other projects. And then we came back to it. And what was your question? Now I don't remember. Just uh, when you ramped the schedule down, when you stopped writing a Goosebumps book a month thing i if you go to bookstores now you don't find monthly series anymore and you don't find paperback series you go into the children's department and the teen department of bookstores and they're all hardcover books and people you know bring out if they have a series it comes out once a year some people have an easy life i don't know <laughs> Well, one one thing that you see a lot when you go to the teen section of the bookstore now, and that you were ahead of the curve on, a lot of paranormal. That's kind of in vogue again. A lot. H- have, you, have you read any of the YA paranormal romance phenomenon I, books? I try to keep up. I read a lot of it. Some of it's really good, I think. What have you enjoyed? Recently, I read a book called The False Prince by Jennifer Nielsen which has a great, nasty kid as the main character. And I just really enjoyed it. It's sort of a saga, a big fantasy saga. And uh, I thought that one was really good. I enjoyed that a lot. I hate to bring this up, but you are the number two best-selling children's author of all time. Number one, you were number one for a time, but you have since been eclipsed. I got passed by. By, of course, Harry Potter. Right. What are your thoughts on the Harry Potter series? You know, if I was 10, 11, I would have loved those books. I would have just eaten them up. I don't really understand why adults like them so much. I read them, but I, you know, I I just thought, oh, man, if only I could have been a kid and had these books, I would have just gone crazy because they were terrific. But I don't, you know, 
40% of the Harry Potter audience was adults. Goosebumps are for, for particularly young children. Did you ever get a sense that adults were reading Fear Street? I get some mail, and I, when I do book signings, a lot of grandmothers come up to me and say, oh, I love Fear Street. <laughs> or some people will say, yeah, I'm bringing this home to my mother. She loves your books. And, you know, she's 85. Do you ever get adults telling you they're reading Goosebumps books? Yeah, on Twitter, a lot of adults do, still do. Yeah, it's a phenomenon. You know, it still continues to this day. Um, you see Goosebumps stuff on the internet all the time. And of course, there was that very popular, I'm sure you've seen, I'm not going to bother asking if you've seen it, the Gersberms, Ermager Gersberms uh, meme picture that was going around. Uh, what did, I am going to ask you though, what did you think when you saw that? Hated it. But I, you know, the video, you know, the Nerdist, what's his name? Chris Hardwick. Chris Hardwick, yeah, has this wonderful Gersperms video. Do you know it? I do, I do. Well, I when it came out, the whole Gersperms thing, I didn't really understand it. And I thought, I really, I you know, I have a good sense of humor. I thought, why is this funny? <laughs> now, are you generally interested in following, like, that kind of humor on the Internet? Like, just, it's not directly comparable, like, lolcats or anything like that? Because you are very active on Twitter, and you seem... Uh, like you know what you're talking about with computers. I love Twitter, but just mainly because it's a, such a great way to keep in touch with my old audience. So you're, you're active online. And you, are, were you familiar with like the, that kind of humor, that like kind of image-based uh, meme humor? I and uh, college humor and The Onion, of course. I love all those. So here, here's Gersperms, and I thought, what is going on here? I just, you know, I didn't like it. And then I got an email from Chris Hardwick, and he said, we're doing a video about Gersperms with this Muppet, the Swedish chef, and I'd love for you to be on it. And I said, no way. <laughs> I said, I hate that whole thing. I just, I don't get it, and I don't want to do it. And he wrote back, and he said, well, I really appreciate how sensitive you are about your audience, and that's really nice, and uh, how about... Um, if you came on the video and you say, I hate this, I don't approve of this video. And I said, that sounds great. That I can do. <laughs> that I can do. I'm happy to do that. So I went down to the NBC and, you know, taped my little part of the video. And then it came out and I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. Did that turn you around on the original image? Can you now see the humor in it? I think a, a little bit. I think I understand it. Were you concerned that it was making fun of your readers? Here was a girl who was a Goosebumps fan, and she had, you know, the big thing in her mouth, the retainer, huge mm. retainer. So she talked funny, and I thought that was making fun of uh, Goosebumps readers. I mean, when I look at that, I, I think, I could see how you could see it that way, but I think the reason it's... And certainly some people did see it that way. But I think the reason it's so popular and the reason it became such a thing online isn't because people are making fun of it. It's because they can relate to it. And <laughs> even if it's not Goosebumps, and most of us can relate to being that excited about Goosebumps, you know how it is to be a kid and be that excited about something. And I think that's like what that image captures so well. Yeah, I was totally wrong. I was just wrong about it. You know the girl. You've never been in touch with her, I'm assuming. No, I haven't. Someone should get you two together. I should have tried to make that happen. That would be fun. That would be funny, wouldn't it? Yeah, we got we got to try to f track her down. Over a million people have seen that video now. Several million people have seen that original image. It's a, it's a you know it's one of those it's one of those things that just takes off and has a life of its own. Right. I figure it can't hurt. 
No, I mean, at this point, you know, I think you've established the brand at this point. I think I think people are on board. You know, we were talking about adults reading your books, and you actually recently wrote an adult book. Maybe I should say grown-up book. It feels kind of icky the way I keep saying adult book uh, called Red Rain. Yeah. It's coming out in paperback soon. And this is a scary book for grown-ups. Yeah, well, you know, I said I'm on Twitter all day, and it's all these people who read Goosebumps, and now they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s, and they'd all say, oh, we loved your books when we were kids. Write something for us. Write, please, write something for us. And I thought, well, I can't. I can't ignore my original audience, can I? And that's why I started putting together ideas for, uh, for Red Rain. So it was a direct response to being on Twitter and hearing from that community. It really was. That's the absolute truth. And was that your first grown-up book, you know, since you had taken on Goosebumps? I, had, I wrote one 15 years ago, a book called Superstitious, about the most superstitious man in the world. Man, I hope it doesn't sound like I didn't do my research. You've written so many books, it is extremely difficult to pull apart what you wrote and when. There's just hundreds of them. I talk about them all, I have to go take a nap. Yeah. So when you're writing Red Rain, do you, is it, obviously it's different from writing a kid's book. How is it different from writing a kid's book? Well, for one thing, I had to do research. <laughs> kids will believe anything. Adults, they know what's wrong. Book, you make it all up, but you can't do that. And that's actually what's so different about adult books. You know, I was talking about, I have the kids' books, the kids have to know that it's a fantasy, that it can't happen. And that it's, you know, it's just made up. But when you write a horror novel for adults, they have to believe it. You have to get the details right. It has to be very real or it's going to be too ludicrous. It'll be preposterous. And your readers won't go with you. So it's kind of the exact opposite of writing for kids. Did you have difficulty adjusting to that uh, new process? I didn't, but I had difficulty adjusting to how long it took. Because I'm used to, you know, writing the kids' books very quickly. And I spent five months on Red Rain. And that was just very strange to me. And spend, spend that much time on a book, you know. And I couldn't really outline it because it was 400 pages long. So I had like, figure out a few chapters ahead and then write them and then a few more. I couldn't, I'm used to working with a, you know, a very complete outline. And I did a lot of, I, I, you know, I wrote Red Rain because I thought I needed a challenge. I, the kids' books were so easy. I thought I needed something a little hard. And I don't know why I thought that. Why do I need a challenge? <laughs> I don't. I didn't need it. <laughs> it turns out you did not need the challenge. Well, did you enjoy the challenge? Was it satisfying to complete it? Yes, it was. Are you anticipating writing more books like that? Oh, I'm waiting by the phone. No one's called me so far. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear it from somebody. But Even you, an author, with your success, you've got to wait for someone to call you. You can't just write well, it and sell it. I could, I could, but I, you know, we're waiting to see how well, if Red Rain does really well, I'd love to write more for that audience. And what is Red Rain about? Red Rain is about evil twins, really supernaturally evil twins. It's about a young woman who writes a travel blog and goes to an island off the coast of Virginia, one of the Outer Bank Islands, a little further south. And the day after she's there, there's a devastating hurricane. And it blows, it destroys the island. It destroys everything on the island and kills half the population. It just wipes everything out. It's just awful. And the next day, she staggers out 
and sees this incredible devastation and she staggers down to the beach and it starts to rain and she realizes the raindrops coming down are red it's blood it's a blood rain and she thinks this is the blood of all the victims who died yesterday in the hurricane coming down on us and out of this torrent out of these curtains of red rain stepped these two blonde beautiful blonde 12 year old boys twins and they say we've lost everything we our parents are gone we have nothing and she has this immediate attachment to them and she ends up adopting them and bringing them home to her family in Long Island and she and her husband are clueless they don't realize that these are the most evil kids possible they're just horribly evil kids and then the murders start and then the murders start did you was it fun you know not writing for kids and being like you know what i'm going to make it rain blood in this book there's going to be murders in this book was that freeing i got everything but also i thought people would think it's funny that i after all these kids books that i wrote about evil kids Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that intentional? Yeah, that was. that's sort of where it started. You were thinking, what would happen if someone, if a kid read my books and took them too seriously? <laughs> yeah, we don't want that. You have now returned to the world of adult books. Do you have any intention of fulfilling your original dream and returning to the world of humor for adults? Uh, no. Not going to happen now? No, I have to be scary. I mean, you're obviously a funny guy. Just in conversation here, we can tell. I can tell that that, that desire doesn't burn within you anymore. No. But you know what's happening to me now? I'm getting all these invitations from um, improv groups and comedy troops here in New York. Yeah, I saw you on my friend uh, Chris Gethard's show. Yeah. What was it like? How, what was your experience like on Chris Gethard's show? Like I was on Mars. Yeah, isn't it? I've done it too. It's the absolute most fun thing in the world. I, but I just, I thought I was like from another planet or something. <laughs> I don't know. But I've done um, things at the pit and at... Um, um, UCB? Right. Uh, because, you know, the audience, they're my old readers. And I go down and I, I will tell, like, I'll tell a scary story and then they'll do 20 minutes of improv. Oh, that sounds so fun. It's been great. It's like my second career now is going to these comedy clubs and doing stuff. So that's been a lot of fun for me. Yeah, because now you're getting to fulfill that. It's not exactly, and, you know, getting back to this idea that you can't plan it, it's not exactly how you saw your comedy career going, but um, it's cool that you, you can be involved in that. Yeah, it's, it's just fun. You know, something else you created that I don't know a lot of people know you created is the Nickelodeon show Eureka's Castle, which is extremely different from anything we've been talking about already. How did that come about? I have very fond memories of that show. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge hit at the time. But now I have all these people that are saying, oh, my God, Eureka's Castle. We loved it. We loved Eureka. So and Eureka's Castle, for those that don't remember, was like, uh, it was like a Nick Jr. show, right? It was for much younger children. Like You know what it was? It was Sesame Street, except we didn't teach them anything. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I mean, I, I remember it. I think I was a little too old for it, but I probably watched it anyway. I definitely remember it. Like, I remember Magellan and Eureka, and, you know, I can name a few of the characters. So I definitely watched some of it. How did you come to create that? Um, I, my fr I had done a project with this uh, guy, Kit Laybourne, who was the producer of the show. And we'd had a lot of fun together doing this earlier project. And he called me up and he said, I'm, I need, we're going to need, I need someone to write all the puppet scripts. We had these wonderful puppets, 
by all done by guys who had been trained by Hansen, by Jim Hansen. And they were just amazing puppeteers. And he said, we're going to have four or five puppet scripts a show. I need someone I'd like you to be head writer and hire a staff. And I need somebody to write hundreds of these five and ten minute scripts. And uh, that's, I said, that's great. That was my whole TV career, pretty much. Do you not work on the Goosebumps TV shows? Uh, no. Well, they were, back in the, I, we'd read the scripts and make comments and that kind of thing. And, you know, on my new show, The Haunting Hour, uh, ha I have the same arrangement. I don't really have time to write. The, the Haunting Hour is on every Saturday night on The Hub. Um, and we're in our third year. The show's done great. But, I, you know, I make comments on the scripts and make sure they don't go too far and make sure they have some funny stuff in them, you know, that kind of thing. So... I want to go back to Eureka's Castle. I don't want to let that go just yet. What was that process of writing those characters like? Because that's comedy for even younger kids that are reading Goosebumps. I had to, you know, had to really think down, but and it was a challenge. And television is the opposite of writing books, of course, because it's totally collaborative. You know, I I would come in with a script and we'd sit down, we'd have our meetings and around the table all the producers of the show would be there and the director and the puppeteers and all the people from the network there'd be this long table of people and they'd go over every line you wrote and everybody had another suggestion and that was very hard for a writer to get used to mm -hmm. you know i'm used to in a room by myself and writing a thing and uh this was like oh let's see what the boys in the mail room think of that and that was very hard. It's very hard to get used to. Did you get used to it? No. But I did it for four years, though. We did, the, we did 100 episodes of Eureka's Castle. And the, the, fun, the nice thing was that, I mean, I would write, you know, a script, and then it would be ripped apart by everybody. And I'd come in with a revised script, and that would be ripped apart by everybody. And then I would do a third script, and then we would go out on the set, and the puppeteers would do the scene. And they would say whatever they wanted. They didn't care about the script. They would just say whatever. Any, I hardly rec recognize. <laughs> and they would do. And luckily, they were really funny. And then I could just take credit for it. I remember Batley. He was kind of like an annoying, uh, he's the kind of character you don't usually see on a kid show. He's kind of an annoying. Selfish. Yeah. He actually, my son wasn't like that. But his main thing was sort of based on my son. My son would come running into a room and fall down when he was real little. He would fall down and he'd say, I meant to do that. He would do that all the time. And so that's why Batley does the same thing. Batley will fly into a scene and f fly into the wall with his head and fall and say, I meant to do that. He was actually based on Matt. You know, we opened up, we, we talked about some of the horror movies you enjoyed as a kid, the EC Comics. What scares R.L. Stein now? Like, what kind of horror movies are you into these days? Have horror movies, I have no good answer for that question because horror movies don't scare me. I have this weird reaction. Horror novels, I don't, I don't know what that feeling is like of going into a movie and getting scared. They always make me laugh. Always. When the shark comes up, the shark jumps up and chews up a, a, a girl, makes me laugh. I, I actually, I'm, I'm a lot the same way. I think a lot of it is because... You know, when I see a scene, I'm often, unless the movie's really good, you know, I'm always thinking, like, how'd they do that? And I'm imagining the puppetry 
you know, that's like made the decapitated head and like all the makeup and the effects. And I'm, I'm kind of putting it all together. And that and that's really funny to look at. But that's not something that horror books have to worry about. So what horror books uh, scare you? Yeah, I, there were a few. There are a few Stephen King books that I think are really terrifying. Uh, the scariest one for me was uh, Pet Cemetery coming back to life and being very different. That was very creepy. That was a very creepy book, I think. People often would call you or would consider you like the kid's version of Stephen King. Did that bother you or was that something you tried to shake off? I thought, I don't know how he feels about it, but I was very flattered. I think he's a great storyteller. And for me to be called Stephen King for kids, it was always, I thought that was such a nice thing. Only one time a magazine wrote an article and they called me, a literary training bra for Stephen King. <laughs> you don't want to be called a training bra. Nah, yeah. but their heart was in the right place. Have you ever met Stephen King over the years? Wasn't that terrible? I've met, you know, a million authors, and I have a lot of author friends, and, uh, but I somehow, he's always up in Maine, you know. I've never met him. You know, having a million author friends, getting these kids from letters, what is the best part of uh, selling 380 million kids' horror books? No, no, the best part is the wonderful mail and the great contact you have with kids. I'm just back from the Tucson Festival of Books in Tucson. And, you know, having these long lines of kids waiting to see you and waiting to talk to you and meet you, I, there's nothing. I, it's just, it, I, I'm always amazed. I feel like a very lucky person. Well, I also feel very lucky, not only for the opportunity to discuss these books with you for the past hour, but also for the opportunity to grow up reading them. They obviously made a huge mark on me and on my generation, and I want to thank you for writing them and also for coming on the podcast today to talk about them. Oh, thanks, Jeff. A lot of fun. Thank you. Wow. Thank you once again to R.L. Stein and thank you to Marcy for setting that up. You know, we've been kind of on a nostalgia kick for the past few weeks over here at the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. We had the Nintendo Game Counselor who talked about working at Nintendo during the 8 and 16-bit eras. We had Mo from Guts who talked about being a referee on Nickelodeon's Guts. And now, of course, we had R.L. Stein talking about Goosebumps in the 90s. So next week, I want to bring the show back into the present. And we are going to do that by talking to some people who have done almost the impossible. They have created something that is truly new on the internet. They are the Gregory Brothers. They are the musicians behind the Auto-Tune the News and Songify this series. Here is just a little snippet of what that is going to sound like. So when does this get to Songification? And also, I realize now that we never really established, for those that aren't somehow unfamiliar with what you guys do, uh, what is songification and where did it start? So a songification is really a song. It is, it is just a longer word for song, but what is specific to songification is that it is a song made from things that were not originally intended to be a song. Mm -hmm. That is, when you auto-tune Joe Biden giving a speech and make that a song. Okay. You have songified it. And when did you guys start songifying? What was the first video you songified? The first video was that vice presidential right, debate. Right, right. So this was in the campaign season for 2008. Mm -hmm. It was Palin versus Biden. And it, I think it was really lucky that it was this video because they're both very good unintentional singers. Mm -hmm. And if you're dealing with people that like speak like speak like this, like in, kind of in their throat, you're not going to get anything good because there's no tone, there's no pitch in there. And so I think... Is lucky because if it was McCain and he's just kind of talking really low, then, you know, we might have given up. We might have been like, well, this doesn't work. So 
what makes someone a good unintentional singer? Joe Biden, for example, is great because when he gives a speech, he just talks like this. And we brought the auto industry back to Detroit. Man, I got to tell you guys, one of the best parts about doing this podcast is obviously that I get to talk to all these cool and interesting people. But one of the highlights over all 80 some odd episodes that I've recorded thus far was recording that episode with the Gregory Brothers because they were nice enough to play some songs. And it was basically like my own private Gregory Brothers concert. And I'm such a huge fan of theirs. And I cannot wait to share that with you next week. It will be up on Tuesday. And let me tell you about a new way to listen to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. You can now go to Jeff Rubin, jeffrubinshow.com. And that existed before, but now it is like a nice website with all these SoundCloud embeds, and you can just see the whole list of episodes there. You can see what the most popular episodes of all time have been, and just listen to them with one click. It is all on the new Jeff Rubin, jeffrubinshow.com. And of course, there is still the Twitter at Jeff Rubin Show. There is Tumblr, jeffrubin, jeffrubin.com. There is a Facebook fan page, and there is youtube.com slash jeffrubin, jeffrubin. But if I could push one thing this week, it would be for you to check out the new Jeff Rubin, jeffrubinshow.com. It is linked to all those other things. It's got my email, so you can email me, or you can put in your email, so I'll email you whenever a new episode comes out. That is Jeff Rubin, jeffrubinshow.com. Next week, Gregory Brothers. I'll see you there.